0: for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast, strangers. Long time no see. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dave.com and, well, always, but now or ever, Dave Daily News. Since I last spoke with you, I've changed jobs. I'm the new community impact editor for the newspaper. No worries, though. The podcast will continue. In fact, I have a fresh episode coming up next week. The world has, of course, changed in much, much, much more significant ways. The killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police and other recent high profile incidents involving unarmed black men have led to protests here in Dayton and around the world. It has also sparked conversations about equality and the relationship between the black community and law enforcement. And that brings us to today's episode of What Had Happened Was. It's an audio version of a new series of community discussions we're calling Courageous Conversations. This one was streamed live on Facebook and YouTube. The panel included community activists, academics, city councilmen, and police chiefs from Dayton and Springboro. It was a great conversation, which is why I'm bringing it to you on the What Happened Was podcast. The What Happened Was podcast is a project of Dayton.com sponsored by the Dayton Daily News. Subscribe to and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you, you find shows you love. Now here's the first courageous conversation.
1: My name is Jim Beddington. I'm the editor of the Dayton Daily News. and I just wanted to welcome our panelists tonight and everybody who is watching and listening to us to this conversation tonight on Facebook Live on the Dayton Daily News channel. I really, really thank you and appreciate everyone on the panel joining us for the first of what we are calling our Courageous Conversations. Community Impact Editor Amelia Robinson asked you all to join us tonight, and this is the first of what we hope to be a series um, that we envision having in person around tables where we can shake hands and see each other face-to-face. Um, Tonight, obviously, we are doing it remotely, so uh, to continue to keep everybody safe. But it is also envisioned that these are going to be about uh, the Dayton Daily News trying to bring people together to talk about the most important issues of our time. And tonight, obviously, there is no more important issue in our time. Uh, To have a conversation about how our community is doing with racial equity, and it is clear from the people we, our staff, has spoken to uh, at protests all around the region that as a community we must do better. So uh, for those watching with us this evening, uh, I will just briefly just uh, introduce the folks who have joined us this evening. We have with us Dayton Police Chief Richard Deal. Shanice Turner-Sloss, Dayton resident, and, uh, and with the organization Neighborhoods Over Politics. We have the Reverend Joshua Ward of Omega Baptist Church. Lawrence Burnley, University of Dayton's Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion. Jeffrey Mims, Jr., at Dayton City Commissioner. Zakaya Zankara-Javar, the co-founder of Racial Justice Now!, Jeff Kruthoff, the Springboro Police Chief, and Mark DeWitt, coordinator of African American Male Initiative at Sinclair Community College, and a member of the City of Dayton's Community Police Council. So again, thank you all very much for being with us. Amelia, over to you.
0: Thanks a lot, Jim. I really appreciate it. Again, I want to echo what Jim said in thanking you all for taking the time to join us, Um, you at home as well. Um, As you know, our community is a tough community, a strong community, but we do have problems in our community that we all together can't address. Um, One of them is, um, and it's become abundantly clear, um, the police relationship with the black community. The first question is, um, what is the nature of our relationship with uh, the police department in the black community? I'll
2: be happy to take that that question. Um, So we have to be clear and honest about this particular topic. And it's not just about policing. We know that policing is an issue, but it's about all of the disinvestment and the lack of opportunities in the black community. And then we also have to be transparent when we talk about this issue. Dayton is one of the most segregated cities in the country. The issues that we are experiencing today it is nothing new. These are issues that we have had and are going on going for quite some time. The systemic racism is in every structure in the city and beyond, but the challenge becomes whether we are willing to make the necessary changes to reverse the damage that has been done to our black and brown communities. And the relationship between black community and the police, quite frankly, is toxic. It's toxic, and I would venture to say that it is the the most likely unspoken norm across the urban, across all urban areas. When you examine the historical context of the roles of the police, you understand why there is a a cultural mistrust. Uh, Therefore, we can't, we use this, this terminology in our household. You cannot prune a dead tree. You really have to start digging from the root. You really have to understand and translate that there's a, a change needs to occur in the culture and the system of its entirety. And that entails investing in the time and bringing in new leadership and adopting new ways about how you instill public trust and confidence.
3: Uh, I'll add really quickly uh, to it just, yeah, ditto, to everything that Shanice has said. I will dig a little bit deeper um, because your question says, the, the, the you know, what is the relationship of the police and the black community. And historically, I don't think we make these links enough, and I want to appreciate Brian Stevenson down at the Equal Justice Initiative uh, down in Montgomery, Alabama, who uh, created the the lynching museum um, that my family and I had an opportunity to visit just this last summer. And he was on CNN just a couple of days ago and made the direct connection between police brutality and murder of black people to lynching. And, I, you know, that may be, you know, scary for some people to hear, but I think that if we really examine our history in this country and the relationship in terms of the question, it's a reality. And it's time for us to really deal with that reality. I think you can't train the officer that murdered George Floyd. There's no kind of training that could have stopped someone from doing that, from keeping your knee on someone's neck for eight minutes and 47 seconds while they hollered out for their mother. There's no training for that. And I think it's time for us to be real about the historical dehumanization of black male bodies in this country and black people uh, writ large when it comes to uh, policing. And so that's why you have organizations who are now calling for uh, steps toward abolition. And when we say defund the police, what we mean is shift the police budget, Uh, To invest in areas of positivity in our community, I know from being a 20-year resident in Dayton, and I lived in northwest Dayton, that there isn't enough after-school activities for young people. There isn't enough uh, investment uh, in grocery stores and things that people need to live full and better lives workforce development. There's so many different things that the city of Dayton uh, could be doing in the county and Ohio writ large to support people so that they don't need uh, a turn to crime, uh, crimes of poverty. And so that's what I think uh, in terms of what we should be doing uh, to correct this relationship between the black community uh, mm-hmm. and policing is to make sure that we're taking an examination of uh, the budget and budgets are moral documents, and we should be investing in people and not crime and criminalizing people.
4: No, the I, of, I like to say that. that.
3: But I, like, obviously,
0: every relationship goes two ways from the police chief's perspective. What would you say to that question?
5: Well, I say actually, the answer to that question would depend on whom you speak to and when you speak to them. It's uh, affected by age of the individual. If you ask that question, too, it's affected by race. It's affected by geography. It's also significantly shaped by events, locally or nationally, such as the Oregon District mass shooting and the police response to it, or the tragic death of George Floyd and the action of police causing it. So all of those factors influence that relationship. It's fluid over time. There are historical challenges with the African-American community. There's no question about that. Much effort has gone into trying to build partnership over decades uh, with all segments of the community, but in particular the African-American community. And, um, you know, there's work to be done. There's no question about it. If you look at our survey, there's a survey done every year in the city of Dayton of residents and ask them their view of the police. Some of that information is very, very uh, hopeful, if you will, that almost 60% of Daytonians are satisfied with the services that they're receiving Ninety-four percent said they respected the Dayton police force, but then when you ask about uh, confidence in fair enforcement, regardless of race or ethnicity, it's about twenty-eight percent for African Americans and twice that for Hispanics, uh, Latinos, and also whites. So clearly, there's a huge difference there. So how the community feels about policing is affected very much based upon race, and in particular the African American community. So. Mm-hmm. Good indications in some respects about the general acceptance and approval of the police department. There are also some huge gaps.
6: But chief, re- referencing that same data, that percentage is about 7% last year. And so the, the um, you know, just being completely transparent, it it continues to to be an issue. I, I understand and, and agree with your characterization that it matters on who you ask. But the question was about the relationship with the black community. And so those numbers, like you said, are more than a little concerning.
5: There's no okay. question about it, but it's also, if you ask, even within the African-American community, there's a significant difference between older population and younger population and how they view police. So it's not universal within the black community itself.
6: But I, I would add, and it really kind of build on something, that said, said, um, historically, you know, I think the African-American relationship to policing Really transcends age because the one constant has been this dehumanization and uh, of, of black narratives, black lives, black bodies uh, that goes back to chattel enslavement. Uh, quite frankly, um, you know, if you were to take an assessment uh, among police, you know, listen, let me be clear, I don't want to put all police officers in one bag. We know yeah. that, but there are systemic realities, right, uh, that sh- that's, that 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 would uh, give, reveal. Um, this kind of one over time, a militarization of, of, of policing in urban areas. Um, and you see this this blatant disregard for, you know, not only disregard for black life and brown life bodies, but a lack of, of, of respo- equitable response from law enforcement themselves toward their own. When we see we have video evidence. <coughs> of uh, of violent behaviors to unarmed black people that uh, that has too often resulted in death. And so there's an extraordinary inequity or incongruency with how law and order is applied. So we send a message to law enforcement, not all law officers, we can't say that enough, but we we, we almost invite um, uh, this kind of disregard. Uh, and, uh, within, with, because of the lack of, 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 of bold and consistent uh, application exactly. of the law itself.
0: Exactly. That kind of leads to the next question I kind of had on the list. Uh, it always comes down to we have a couple of bad apples that ruin the bunch. What can departments do to sort of empower the good apples to stand up to the bad apples? And what is being done in our local departments?
4: Yeah, hey, absolutely. Before before we move off, off that question, uh, I think we start talking about the relationship with the police and the community. Uh, that is a symptom of a greater set of problems that we seem to have skipped over. Uh, I'm coming I back think, to them. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll come back to them. Some, some of the points that uh, Zekia made are, are very relevant. And, and I want to go back and expand upon those. Because far too often we forget about the fact that the African-American community, in particular black males, are at the shortest end of all of the quality of life factors. When you start talking about jobs, start talking about their involvement in the political process, start talking about um, their property owned, property that they own or don't own, um, education, banking, finance situation, health care, recreational opportunities. All of those things are like a powder keg in a respective community, and those things are primarily germane to urban centers across this nation. That's where you have the majority of the problems. So even though you may have a, let's call it a normal traffic stop that you would have anyplace else in the nation, a normal traffic stop is not a normal traffic stop in an urban city. Because those individuals are already traumatized. They're already pressurized because they're getting the short end of quality of life opportunities. And then you have situations where because that person is traumatized, that may be stopped. The officer who may be stopping them is traumatized. So now you have two situations, and if training is not as up-to-date as it should be with, with cultural sensitivity and things of that nature, You have a situation that is potentially volatile. So I I didn't want us to go jump straight to talking about some of the symptoms that we're dealing with with police in those situations, although they're very relevant, without us talking about these kinds of factors that sit laws in place, policies in place, living conditions in place, lack of education in place, those kind of things that exacerbate everything that we're talking about.
3: Which is why that's we're asking people why. in positions so like you, uh, you Commissioner M- you. to defund the damn police and fund the issues. That you just laid out so eloquently—it's all connected. Historically, Mm -hmm. Black people have been on the bottom. We—we built the economy of the country through enslavement, and then we—we're the only group of people that have never received reparations in this country. So, of course, the urban centers, wherever uh, Black and Brown people live, we're going to be at the margins. Which is why I also said—and you skipped over, Commissioner Mims, i respect you a lot, but you are in a position of power, sir. You sit on the city commission. You've been elected statewide. You've been you 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 you've been a part of, of the uh, governing system for a very long time in the city of Dayton and in the state of Ohio. And I think what you know the residents and I have plenty of family. So let's let's keep it. You know I have plenty of loved ones who still live in the city of Dayton and across the state of Ohio. What we want is equitable. E- what we want is equity. What we want is uh, funding of our schools. What we want is funding of recreation supports, workforce development. There's money for that. If you divest from and the
2: police. Exactly. And with that being said, one third of the city budget is allocated to the police. There's a fifty five million dollar budget that is designated to police enforcement for hundred and forty thousand population in the city of Dayton. For what? For the militarization? You again, you laid out everything that we need to do in all of the areas in which we need to address those concerns, and as a city commissioner, You have the power and the authority to allocate those dollars. Case in point, Keith, Bill, you can speak to this directly. The contract is up. Put the language in the contract. Let's have community policing. Let's have community-based policing. Let's make sure that we have the banning of chokeholds. Let's have required de-escalation. Let's look at, lay out the eight can't wait tips and policies that we can look at to make sure that we're moving the city of Dayton forward. We should not wait for the state or the federal government to step in and tell us how to do it and what to do. We're innovative enough. We have the nuggets. We have the the people. We have the intelligent people that are part CPC that have laid out the recommendations. It is the lack and the failure of our leadership that we have in place to move forward, to really put the resources and to put the dollars behind it for us to make those effective changes.
0: Okay, we're going to have to move on a little bit because we only have, like, an hour. Um, we can go as long as you want, but we've told the folks an hour. <laughs> um What can you do, though, to kind of root out these bad apples?
7: So if, if I can jump in here, I mean, I think some – so, so number one, I think what would be helpful when we're talking about this relationship, this mistrust, this distrust, all of that that we've talked about with this first question – part of my barrier and and, and my obstacle to to having this confidence and this faith and this trust is that I I don't hear any response with the bad apples. You can't tell me. I mean, Dayton hasn't had a killing of an unarmed black man, you know, uh, being videotaped and broadcast and gone viral like a lot of other cities have in recent years, but I have talked to people who – experience race-based and race-motivated police brutality. They feel like they've been roughed up. They feel like they've been called um, uh, uh, derogatory names by police, all of that kind of thing. I think transparency, if you are holding those officers accountable, would go a long way for somebody like me to even getting to the place where I'm willing to listen and say, okay, we'll trust and let you all work it out. Um, But I think it's transparency. And then if that isn't happening, if we do have officers who are, are, are uh, committing these racist acts and so on and so forth in Dayton, what is that response? And you know are we saying we absolutely have a zero tolerance policy? Are we getting those folks out? You know I mean that to me makes a big difference. So I'm not as focused on I know so often when folks say, well not all not all officers are bad. I get I get it. I know officers who, who I think are good people. But for me, I'm not focused on the I'm not focused on on the good ones. I'm focused on what are we doing with those with those bad ones, with those bad apples, so to speak, that we talk about so often. And
2: that's why there's are a we the Exactly, and that's why it's a need for an independent oversight body. We have to have that independent oversight body, and we're not doing that. to Thoroughly review those complaints. Exactly.
0: Chiefs, what are you, what do your departments do?
5: to uh, address this? I can just tell you that there have been a number of officers that have been dismissed as I've been chief. I've never had one come back where my original recommendation was dismissal that they have ever returned. This, this claim that well, unions are protecting bad officers and they're just coming back and, and reinstated, not here.
8: Uh, I'd, I'd have I'd have to concur with that. I have probably discharged almost 40 officers in my career as a police chief. I don't say that in a braggadocious sense. Uh, that's just the reality. Those were people who didn't earn to, to wear the badge. Um, so I think, and I, I never had to take any of those back either because fortunately they survived the arbitration process. But I, I will look at some of these other cities that are having big problems. And I use the city of Chicago under Jerry McCarthy. Uh, you asked for an independent review board and 25% of the cases he as the superintendent wanted to discharge the board overturned his decision because those boards then become empowered with their own set of politics and special interests. And so I don't think we want to approach this and throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Uh, You can hold your chiefs responsible. You can hold any chief I know responsible for for getting rid of bad officers. Give him the tools to do it. Then once a chief gets rid of a bad officer, the state of Ohio will not decertify his ability to be a police officer down the road 30 miles. Those are changes, meaningful changes that can occur that will start leading towards purifying the ranks of the officers we have. I don't have a dream that all 900,000 police officers in the country will be uh, without uh, problem officers or bully officers like we saw in Minneapolis. But I do think that we can give chiefs power uh, if we walk with them in, in, in ensuring that they have those kinds of abilities uh, going down the road and dealing with bad officers.
6: With all the respect to Chief Kru, uh I'm sorry, Krughoff and uh, Bill, I don't really think that. The question is about how you've dealt with officers that have been disciplined in the past. I think the question is about how we're dealing with officers and the things that we're seeing. Like um Nan Whaley talked about the complaints that were coming in about things that were done in protest in terms of the military style handling of the crowd. And so I I'm for um chief having the power to discipline, to remove, to do these things without an oversight board, but then the responsibility also comes back to chief or to that office when we're dissatisfied or there's an issue um, that happens when we're saying, "Well, we need action based on the wrongdoings that we that we're seeing." Um, I think the part of the the whole reason for the press conference last week, um, yeah, was was one thing with you know somebody, the guy that, with uh, Jared overseeing C B C and that's a separate issue you know, for you guys to negotiate. But then the other piece of that was that it was said, oh, congratulations to State police on the handling of that. And then that wasn't necessarily the case because then there were lots of videos and things that came in after the fact that said, maybe this wasn't handled the best way and in the best light. And so I don't think the question is how you deal with bad apples. I think it's how you, what's the the, um, progressive, punished, uh, disciplinary action so that we can see action happen like that um, and being more transparent about that process if you want to maintain that oversight at the chief level rather than distribute it to an independent board. Absolutely. I, I think, if I yeah, I think yeah. I, I'm yeah. going to just weigh in. I, I think, you know, if there, there's a reason why uh, black parents are having these conversations with their black children. And it goes back generations. These comments, you know, we didn't, just, we didn't just wake up and say, you know, we should talk about this. There's right. actual experience that informs the fear that we have. I just saw my son graduate from high school. He too. Um, and, um, you know, and he's a child with special that- needs, quite frankly. I'm having the conversation with him. And it's not because, um, you know, it's, 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 it's in vogue. It's because there's, there's a consistent uh, uh, pattern here where there are police officers, despite some of the efforts these chiefs have done with regard to uh, discipline, there are police officers based on the the prosecution or lack thereof to to, to violence, right? Mm -hmm. Law enforcement officers who have uh, displayed on video in many cases uh, unlawful behavior that has resulted in death. Who, who, who have gone back on, uh, they've been on administrative leave, very few, we can document, that have actually gone to jail or in, or in prison have, that have been prosecuted. So we send a message that uh, lacks deterrence, that, you know what, this is okay. And that message pretty much reinforces this notion that black lives really don't matter because, because you know, the, the, the deterrence isn't there. You know, it, it's not. There's not a, a seems to be a, a culture, even within policing, uh, policing uh, the, the policing community, where police who want to do the right thing, uh, they're fearful, and I've talked to police officers, um, they're fearful of retaliation uh, from from their peers who won't have their exactly. back in the street. So I look to leadership within the police department. Where's the boldness? Where is the, where's the policy at the policy level? That's right. Uh, at every level, and, and if you look at a holistic um, uh, approach to uh, uh, responsive policing at the hiring level, at mandatory training level, uh, at disciplinary level, uh, you know, it, it has to be bold leadership that says, "No, know what, this will not happen here, if you do this, here are the consequences. But we don't see enough of that.
3: That's exactly right. And I think we would be remiss, I have to say this uh, in terms of Amelia's original question, we would be remiss not to talk about qualified immunity. And I don't even know if people on this call understand what that is, but I'm going to give you the definition. Qualified immunity is a legal doctrine in the United States under federal law which steals government officials, cops, from being held liable for discretionary actions that are performed within their official uh, capacity uh, when it comes to violating someone's constitutional right that are clearly established by federal law it is designed to protect all but the plainly incompetent or those who are knowingly violating the law law enforcement officers entitled to qualified immunity when their actions do not violate clearly established statutory constitutional rights so that's why you have senator cory booker at the federal level introducing a bill uh that will get rid of this uh protection for police officers Uh, when they murder people, when they brutalize people uh, uh, in communities. So we we would be remiss not to mention the fact that there's all kinds of protections for the lawlessness uh, that police officers commit uh, in communities. The other thing is, is that I don't think that it's fair for us to try to you know, paint Dayton as some kind of perfect utopia. I lived in Dayton for 20 years. It is not a perfect utopia when you deal uh, with the police. I will never forget, and it was it was at, uh, the beginning of my activism when Kylan English. I know the official story says that he uh, committed suicide, but I will tell you that myself and plenty of other people still in the Dayton community think that the Dayton police murdered that young man, and I think that we still have not dealt with that. I believe that there were people who were asking questions still to this day. Uh, uh, some of the protesters I saw in Dayton had signs with his name on it we haven't forgotten about that and chief bill you were on the force when that happened and so my my the the problem is is that there's going to be continue to be uh, mistrust because it was not on video and we know that officials protect each other. That this, this is this is historical. And the FOP absolutely is a problematic organization. You you have protesters in D.C. right now who are throwing uh, firebombs at the AFL-CIO because they continue to have police unions as a part of it. We have uprisings all around this country. The other piece that I wanted to share uh, to Commissioner Mim's point earlier, you know, was this idea around urban areas and poverty and black people who are in poverty. I will tell you right now, black people with money get killed by the police. As I stated at the beginning of this program, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland now, which is a suburb of D.C. We're recession-proof. This is one of, wealthy county, one of the wealthiest communities in this country, and we've had three black men killed by the Montgomery County Police Department. Two of them were immigrants. So it's, it's about blackness. We cannot make this about poverty. We cannot make this about anything else but really uh, race and gender. Because when you look at the disproportionate killings of by police officers, they are black Men, and we have to be clear about that. And we cannot act like Dayton is some kind of utopia. Uh, they have not had their own problems in the past around police misconduct. And what I will say is police murder.
5: Well, oh, I don't think everybody's going to perfect. discarding violent English is absolutely not true. There's a federal investigation of that event, it was captured. A portion of it was on video, and there was an eyewitness that was identified by the Dayton Daily News who have posted what happened immediately after it happened.
0: Uh, I'd like to- I, 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 just, I, I just want to pop in real quick to remind people who are joining us on Facebook what they're looking at. This is the first of our series of courageous conversations. We're talking about the police relationship with the black community here in Dayton. And, and I, when I we say Dayton, we don't just mean Dayton proper, we mean the suburban areas as well, um, and how those relationships can be improved. Um, I wanted, a couple people on Facebook asked about de-escalation training, what kind of training local police officers have, and what sort of training is maybe needed. I'll, I'll just start with the police chiefs. Um, we have Chief Bill from Dayton, and we have Chief Jeff, I can't pronounce your last name, <laughs> from Springboro. Um, what kind of training does uh, police officers generally have in this area, and that's your department's?
5: There is actually training that's required by the Ohio Police Officers Training Commission on de-escalation. So it's a part of the basic curriculum for police officers who go through the, the fundamental academy, which is the certification process for them to actually become police officers. I might also mention that de-escalation is presented as if it's somehow a new concept, as if it's never been thought of before. Any police officer that was... Quality, understood that de-escalation was always an important option in responding to potential conflict in any situation. So this is not a new concept. It's been lifted up because of the, like some cases, very high profile, that de-escalation was never considered. So this has always been part of the repertoire of policing.
8: In, uh, in Springboro, we are what's called a Lexapol agency where every day an officer has to, uh, reviews a scenario and, uh, he has to read the policy as it p- applies to that scenario. And then he also has to answer a test question at the end of that to, under- to make sure he understands that. Uh, our Lexapol policies, and you mentioned eight can't wait, uh, our policies comply with all eight of those uh, requirements. And then we also, uh, belong to the virtual academy, which Requires an officer to do a lot of video training. It's just the more uh, efficient way to do that. Um, The ones that were issued today, so this every officer will have to go through these trainings. Most of them are anywhere from 10 to 20-minute videos. Some of them run into an hour long. Cultural competency, racial profiling, appreciating diversity, cultural competency, racial profiling, use of force and liability issues. Those are just the ones that have been issued this week, and that's an ongoing process. Obviously, those are geared towards the issues that we're currently facing. But every almost every uh, week when an officer comes, he has some video training he needs to go through. There's a written test he has to take. And uh, all on our policies to make sure our practices follow our policies.
0: One of the things, too, that you mentioned, too, Chief, is the whole idea of a um, can't wait. And one of the things that I think kind of stand out for most people was the whole no choking, no strangulation as part of that. Can you explain that whole thing as far as why somebody would choke someone? And can you tell me, is it possible not to do that and still be an effective law enforcement officer? And in other words, is it was effective not to have that in the wheelhouse? I mean, uh, can, we absolutely. Yeah, I, can we get a
6: clarification? Can a clarification here from the chief of something he said? I think it's really important, chief. In, in terms of in your uh, your department, all the training that you um, just listed, one. Is that mandatory for all officers? Uh, and is that a sustained process where that's evaluated? And then also, are you, how, how are recruits even screened around racial identity and these issues around implicit bias? How are you even screening people before they even get a badge on? I'm just curious about that. okay.
8: Let, let, let me take the training issue first here, and if I forget the second part of that question, please remind me. Yes, it is a sustained effort. We've been elect- we were one of the fr- original first eight, uh, 50 agencies in Ohio. Uh, to bring Lexapol into the state to help us make sure that our policies reflect, uh, the, the best of practices. And it is a sustained effort. And then i um, in terms of how do we screen officers for that, uh, our officers are, I have to give polygraph tests. We do an extensive background, as I'm sure Dayton does. There's a psychological test that they have to take. Uh, we can always improve our rehiring practices. I was, uh, cool. a, a chief shared a story with me this week. We do put a lot of emphasis and this chief actually heard it from a fire chief. Uh, but we do put a lot of emphasis on hiring people, uh, for what their head has, uh, not what their heart has. And, uh, when people come in and they're, they've got college degrees and they're very quick-witted and uh, appear to handle themselves well on their feet, we hire them because of what their head has and we don't worry about what their heart has. We do need to spend just as much time making sure that we know what their heart contains is what their head contains, and we can always mm-hmm. do a better job on that. I don't think any chief would disagree with that. Um, Amelia, getting back to, to your, your questions thank before you. this was, uh, could you repeat that?
0: Yeah, I was just wondering about the fir- one of the first things in A Can't Wait is the whole idea of strangulation. Oh, yes,
8: me. thank you, thank you. Now, I, I am shocked, and I think Chief Field is as well, Uh, that the Minneapolis Police Department, which historically, by PERF and some other organizations, was held to be a pretty progressive police department, I'm shocked that they had uh, a choke policy that was allowable under policy. I have not been in an agency. We got rid of uh, anything to do with a neck restraint or a choke policy back in the 90s, uh, unless an officer's in the fight for his life, and that's not certainly applicable here. Um, and I'm also uh, kind of shocked that they were not more sensitive to the whole issue of positional asphyxiation. Um, there are many times where a arrest process ends up with a person on their stomach and weight on their back. The training is the minute the handcuffs go on, you get that person off their stomach and onto their side. Officers are trained in that, in our ground force training, our defensive tactics training. We reemphasize that time and time and time again. Because many of these deaths are positional fixation deaths, and I'm kind of just shocked and appalled, but quite frankly, that Minneapolis policy seem to be a little bit blind towards that or uh, didn't speak to it because uh, it's it's been around for way too many years to not have policies that address it.
0: Chief Bill, um, is that the same in Dayton?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. How about yeah. the rest? Go ahead, My, Jeff. Yeah. You know, I have a um a broader vision as far as uh, police uh, recruitment and training is concerned. Um, I mean, we have uh, mountains of data that talk about the fact that the higher the level of education that the officer has, uh, the longer it takes him or her to use any type of force to restrain or to... um, Get control, if you will, of uh, whoever the assailant may be, or whoever the person may be that they're that they're addressing. And I, I would like to see somewhere down the line, maybe a, a some work with the universities. Like I've approached, I've approached Central State University in terms of their criminal justice department, and finding out if there's some kind of possibility in the future to do some type of a linkage between police recruitment training and a criminal justice department in a Sinclair or Central State or UD, something along those lines, which puts all of us in a much better position to have higher level of training with those individuals who are going to be going out with the weapon, interacting with people that we have in our society. I think the current training of approximately six months and giving uh, individuals uh, weapons of death is is challenging. And while we have been, I think, lucky here, blessed in a lot of sense, not to have some of the magnitude of challenges that they've had in other nation, other states, you know, and we and we knock on every type of thing that we can to hope that that continues. We're still not perfect in terms of what we do, but I think the aspect of Have we had those kind of challenging, super challenging situations that they've had in other places? We have not. Are we lucky or blessed right now? Yes. Can we do better? Yes. And I think we've outlined some things that we're going to do and work on to try to make sure we do a better job. But I think long term, long term, I think having a higher level educational requirement would be a good place to be. I just want to remind
0: people what they're looking at right now. I'm Amelia Robinson. I'm the um, Community Impact Editor for the Dayton Daily News. This this is part of our new series called Courageous Conversations, where we're going to tackle issues that affect people in our area. Um, Another question I wanted to ask you, actually, um, Commissioner Mims, because it just came up yesterday, is um, commissioners are considering declaring uh, um, racism a uh, mental health issue and a public health crisis. Um, not not so much a mental health issue
2: but a public health crisis how is that going to help the situation it won't unless you put funding behind it policy and funding period
4: I'm sorry go ahead
2: that's all I got to say you got to put the the money where your mouth is
4: no I'm sorry I thought you asked me the question and I was trying to get ready to answer the question but I wanted to hear what you had to say as well
2: I'm complete I'm done go ahead please
4: no I didn't hear what you said
2: I said, you have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to put the funding and the resources behind it. And we have not been doing that. With our current leadership, we fail every time. We come out with flowery language and we don't support it. We have a department, an independent agency, HRC, who does great work. Mark DeWitt sits on CPC. They have the recommendations. They have the tools. Again, it comprises of, of, of a number of intelligent individuals who have given the recommendations. So we cannot keep operating doing the same thing and not willing to give up and make sacrifices when it comes to the resources and that's the dollars.
4: Okay, Ms. Robinson, you want me to ask the question that you asked me? Yeah. Okay, thanks. All right, the, um, the, the clear issue, and I think I alluded to it earlier, Everything in this nation centers around race, and one of the major problems that we have in this nation is a failure to admit to that. You know, I shared a list of some things that we're dealing with on a national basis, local basis, uh, many of which the city has no control over, and uh, like a lot of us, we are playing the hands that we have been dealt. When we look at those issues... Again, like I talked about banking and financing. Uh, for about 25 years, I also served as compliance officer for Dayton Public Schools. And in a lot of the training that I went through in terms of uh, racial discrimination and those type of issues, we found that 70% of the African-Americans in this nation who qualified for prime interest rate loans were getting subprime interest rate loans. And 70% of the white Americans who did not qualify for prime interest rate loans were getting prime interest rate loans. So it it gave a person, a white person who was making $55,000 a $75,000 value, if you will, based on taxes and and, and, and interest rates. And by the same token, an African-American who made $75,000 basically had $55,000 in spending power based upon what they were experiencing because of, redlining, uh, profiling, and other type of situations where they were given the higher interest rates just because they were black. So when we talk about how that affects your buying power, your spending power, your ability to have uh, proper health care, all of those things combine and multiply with the laws of quality organizations, uh, retail services and goods in your particular community are determined at a corporate level. If your community in a 30-mile radius does not make over average household income $48,000, they're not coming. If they're here and you make less than $48,000, they're trying to figure out how to get out. So your average household medium income is a lot lower than it is in your suburban areas. So, oh,
2: Commissioner, as a sitting, sitting elected official, what are you doing to change that? What are the solutions? What are the policies? How are you changing that? We know all of this. We all know this. We live this every day. But what policies are you creating and implementing to change the dynamics?
4: Now, when you get a chance to answer a question, you answer your question where you want to answer it.
2: Yes, you're absolutely right.
4: You. I'm uh, waiting.
0: I, because I'm, I'm,
4: not, I'm not thinking we're trying to do a debate here, I'm, because no, I it's not a debate. It's a conversation.
0: We're going to respect yeah. each other, and it's fine. We're all it's oh everything's okay. We're just having a conversation. I'm not, I'm
4: not going to be a defensive person, but this is the second yeah. time. Okay, we've been interrupted. So, uh, as we move forward, the question was, how is it being categorized as a national? Um, health crisis or issue dealing with race, because all those things affect our community. Many of those things that I talked about, state determines educational funding. We have been told that, for example, if we're looking at education in um, any school district, the court has already said that the way we fund schools primarily using property tax is unconstitutional because rich communities generate more money than poor communities. Okay, The things that we're talking about that keep African-American individuals from generating the kind of income, property wealth, things of that nature, has a direct impact on the dollars that they have not only in their schools but also in city government and things of that nature as well. So I'm going to stop right there and, and let you ask that question of someone else. But all those things are connected. That's why we're trying to move in that particular direction.
3: I think the problem is is people aren't hearing solutions from an elected official. You're the only elected official on this uh, program and and people are looking to you for leadership. That's that's the only thing. We heard about the problem. Everybody sure. every, Everybody on this panel know what the problem is, commissioner. We want to hear that's, we want to hear that's, that the city crazy. of Dayton is going to create uh we we're, we're going to create city laws where <laughs> institutions won't be able to do that to black people in the city of Dayton. You have the power to do that. You, you, All of y'all are Democrats on the commission. Y'all, y'all follow each other's lead.
6: Zakia, I, I, I'm not sure uh, that we, we, we really do know what the problem is, to be very Thank honest you. with you. Thank I you. think there's something happening at a systemic level that we don't talk about. And this is what's frustrating for me in these conversations around race. Cornel West once was asked, uh, you know, how do he feel about race relations in the United States? and he, And I'm going to paraphrase his response. I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. And what erodes my optimism, quite frankly, is that we continue to maintain a system of education that really perpetuates the myth of white supremacy. We we have an educational system. I mean, K through terminal degrees, right? And we have this dominant narrative about reality. We don't even know our history. We don't even know how we arrived at this point. We're using the term race, and I'm, I'd be I'd be interested to see how many graduates from universities like my own or other institutions of higher education can give an informed, nuanced, complex uh, uh, answer to how and why race was invented, the impact this had uh, on a certain populations based on identity, how wealth was distributed. My wife and I recently watched a um, two-part documentary on um, reconstruction. You know, it, it was well done, right? Uh, but, you know, how many of us knows how we got to, you know, what the problem, the origin? We can't move forward uh, and fix this thing unless we first go back and understand how we got here. And our system of education marginalizes voices and narratives and perspectives that when really it gets into the weeds of this, right, we sell a dominant narrative, right? Uh that uh romanticizes the history of some and and demonizes and marginalizes those of others, all driving this notion. I teach history. I have brilliant students who tell me two weeks in African-American history. We do surveys, and we're looking at U.S. history from multiple perspectives, and students are saying to me two weeks in, largely white students, Dr. Burnley, how come we've never had this before? Exactly. And these students are elected to take my course. Institutions were prepared to give them degrees, degree saying that they're well educated. We have leaders with all kind of letters behind their names, right, and titles in front of it. Quite, but who are in positions of privilege and power to even dismiss, even being involved in the conversation to explore the history that has informed their privilege and power. So, so there's this this structure in this country that allows for the 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 the, the uh, protection. And, and reproduction of power and privilege of certain communities, largely white, but then, but not only, because there are all kinds of identities that enjoy various types of power and privilege, including me, right? So, you know, at a, at a systemic level, right, we have to, you know, we have to get into the weeds and look at these systems that we participate in perpetuating that result in these disparities mm-hmm. that, are, that persist in, 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 uh, in our communities. Dr. Burnley, I think that, um, I, I definitely value that. My bachelor's degree is in history. I believe wholeheartedly in what you just said. Um, but, and, I don't know. I'm not here to point blame or fingers or any of that. But what, what like you just said, what we all have to understand is that racism is a systemic problem that permeates every aspect of society. We are where we are because of, um, the racial chasm and those disparities that exist in everything from retirement. We've heard talk about interest rates from redlining, from uh, teaching standards. Who sets those standards? People that don't graduate from public schools set standards for public schools. And America is a public school dominant system. Um, we're looking at disproportionate representation of blacks in all
7: aspects of, of
6: startling. Oh, but then, being a public school-driven society and system, this is the group that we have to protect. Unfortunately, for both chiefs here, as well as our elected officials, the police are the most visible and, therefore, the most reacted to by the community that we're supposed to represent, you know, a workforce that has this systemic, in a lot of ways, racism that falls so soundly. On, on the black body. Ta-Nehisi Coates said it like this, you know, despite the framing that racial chasms, the racial justice, the racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy serves to obscure that racism falls squarely on black people. And so, nobody's in denial of any of that. Right. And right. sorry, Jeff, but I don't really, I don't say that to give you relief from what she's asking. I feel like we have to make the change is necessary. I sit in CBC meetings. Um, Chief, I, I will admit to have uh, made fun of, in the past and characterized when you talk about your 35 years because sometimes I feel like you use that as a barrier to tell us why something won't work. And I think that we have to move forward in a different way and say, well, then we need to try these things so that the rest of us who lack that experience can understand whether it will work what to do or change about it rather than just being told no. And I, I mean, I, like I said, I didn't want to get into the conversation about, you know, last week or anything else, but I don't think that the characterization that we haven't accomplished anything in 18 months is is valid. I think that you sat at the same
7: table and are just
6: as accountable for those 18 months as I am as a community member. And so we have to have a different approach. We have to try more, um, now, I guess there's accountability beyond the table from what the mayor said last week, and that's great. I want to talk about forward conversations. I didn't come here to point a finger at you, to point a finger at us. I want to talk about moving that agenda forward. I don't know what the mayor has planned. She's brought those five points. they are definitely points that I know you can identify just like I can from sitting in that room for the last 18 months that these are things that we've talked about before. But I can also admit these are things that we've made recommendations about before that haven't been taken. So I don't want to hear you haven't done or accomplished anything in that time frame. There's more work to be done. Glad to still stand here and move forward and work with you if that's what's to be. Let me ask you uh, that. in
0: that that sort of line right there, what is the one thing that you wish that we were doing in this community? And when I say the community, obviously, I mean beyond just Dayton, but Dayton too. What do you want to see happen?
6: Confront, confront race. Yeah. Confront race. I, you know, yeah. I'm, I, I sit on a, uh, on an equity team here in, the, in the region, uh, of leaders from across multiple sectors. I rarely, um, and what we tend to do, we say, well, let's look at the disparities, let's do the studies, let's look at the data and figure out a way forward without examining systemic racism. We have yeah. to examine that. And we have to be willing to uh, deal with the discomfort and the disruption that that, that conversation entails. Um, you know, we have to deal with whiteness. We have to. The black community needs to deal with ways in which we participate in our own oppression. And we do that. Amen. You know, so, so, so we Which have to have
3: a complex, black elected
6: officials not yeah, you know, Mark talked about um, uh, uh, seeing, you know, the most visible in our community, are police officers, well, the visible, most visible should be school teachers and school Truthfully. administrators. You know, they should be the most visible, the people we're sending our kids to. How are we holding them accountable? Um, you know, are, are we at, are we showing up at the PTA meetings? Are we are we making demands about curriculum? What our kids are being taught or not? Well,
3: race now did.
6: So yeah, so it's all of that. I think we all have to have ownership in this, but it needs to be, uh, you know, I think starting with leadership to say we're willing to roll up our sleeves and go way down into the weeds and, and, and look. And at- that's
2: all we're saying. That's yeah,
7: all is it, is there, so you
2: cannot uh, point the finger at the police department and say that all of these issues are lies under the police department, will not get into the root cause and what you touched on systemic racism. You cannot sit up there and say the mayor, the commissioner. you can't say black lives matter. And then you go on West Dayton and there's no hospital. You go on West Dayton and you don't have a mental health facility. You go on West Dayton and there's all this lack of opportunity and resources. You cannot say that black lives matter. You cannot say that you're gonna address these five points of these issues when your policy doesn't reflect, you have done nothing. And again, I'm not pointing a finger at anyone. We're just laying out the facts, and we're we're being truth and honest on what we're dealing with. Well, you I think it's time. Really quickly, what's the one thing you want to see happen?
0: What's the one thing you want to see happen, Shanice?
2: I think to Dr. Burnley's point, we definitely have to be. Um, willing and open to have those uncomfortable conversations. And to be honest, we need change in leadership. I am a former City of Dayton employee and I tell you as a former City of Dayton employee, as a Black woman, the the feelings of, of being undervalued, not to mention underpaid, but again, it's across the board in the entirety of our city administration and it needs to change. We need new leadership in mind that's willing to take Again, those bold steps that's willing to actually communicate and collaborate with the community and looking for uh, new means of how we're doing business and how we're governing. And we're just not getting that right now. What
0: do you want to see happen? Who would you say? Reverend Ward. Josh Ward. You're muted. Yeah,
7: listen, I, I, I'm not the one to jump out. I'm listening. I'm learning. Um, you know, for me, the one thing I want to see happen is really just an uncompromising commitment to equity. Um, I think that encompasses so much of what we're talking about. We have to have um, uncomfortable and real conversations about race. We have to have uncomfortable and real conversations about racism, um, about all of these different components, about divestment from our communities. Um, but from our leadership, from whoever all the folks who are in power, um, and I'm not just pointing fingers, you know. I'm saying whatever my role is in that too. I'm saying I'm willing to, you know, I'm, I'm committed too, you know. But I mean, we really have to talk about equity and creating an equitable and just society. Um, and so, so, if we talk about one thing, I know it sounds flowery. I know it sounds all of that, but that that's, you know, I mean, I think that encompasses. Where are you going to start? How
2: about, what, what about you, Chief Joe? Shanice, let
5: me go to Chief Bill. Yes, please. I apologize. Yeah, there are clearly large conversations
1: that need to happen
5: and that are long overdue. At the same time, this question is, what are we doing? Very pragmatic issues about um, matters of importance in our daily lives that need effort and action. So in my ideal world, there's a conversation between community members of police to identify the safety needs of the community and a safety plan built around that. We need to understand from communities what is important to you as it relates to the safety of your neighborhood, your community. What are those priorities? And how are you going to work with us to help achieve the outcomes that make that a safer community? That's a conversation I've had with the CPC for more than 18 months. It was one of the foundational principles of its formation eight years ago, that at the end of the day, we also do the practical work of making for safer neighborhoods, and that's a collective effort.
3: Um, I'd like to hop in at this point. I'm probably one of the only people on this call who – don't necessarily have anything to lose or any kind of retribution to really uh, tell the truth. And to answer your question, Amelia, there needs to be a reckoning in every institution in the city of Dayton. My experiences is, is that, you know, people want solutions and people want answers. We are past time for conversations. Black people are dying literally from every institution where we're talking about divestment. That's particularly in West Dayton. And we have leadership that haven't done anything about it. Let me tell you something. In 2015, We were having these conversations. You want to know why we were having these conversations? Because of the opportunity mapping that the Kerwin Institute did in conjunction with the Montgomery County uh, Public Health Department epidemiologist, And it showed you the uh, different five areas, education, health, transportation, and economics, all of those areas, black people... Even in Northwest Dayton, where I live, where there was a small community of even middle-class African-Americans did worse than uh, East Dayton, where you have poor and working-class white people. So we're past the time for conversations. There needs to be a reckoning. I agree with Shanice. There needs to be new leadership at the mayoral and the commission level. That's going to take the city of Dayton residents to stand up and do the right thing. It's going to take churches and other people to organize the community to say enough is enough. We need new leadership. I also think philanthropy in Dayton needs to take responsibility. I am appalled that the Dayton Foundation sits down there and does not fund black-led organizations or people-of-color-led organizations working on systemic issues? Mm -hmm. How did we allow Dayton uh, Mental Health uh, Hospital in West Dayton to close? Why would we do that when we see all of the other things that are happening that's inducing mental health crises uh, in Dayton? Everybody needs to be held accountable. The people that are leading the Adamus board, I am beyond sad. Beyond depressed about how black people systemically through policies and practices from the city of Dayton. From the county, where we have all of this democratic leadership that black people give 90% of our votes to, and then we look around, and we don't have a mental health hospital. They closed Good Samaritan Hospital. We don't have a grocery store. Forced me to leave the community that I lived in for 20 years because the school system, I saw the writing on the wall that it was mm-hmm. going to continue to suck because there was not enough of a groundswell for people to make the changes that we needed to make change. There, there has to be a reckoning. Philanthropy, Dayton Foundation, Care Source Foundation, send money all across the region, but not to West Dayton. Nobody on this call should nobody on this call should allow that to happen. There needs to be a racial equity plan across philanthropy, across city government, mm. across mm. the school district, mm. everywhere, all over the region. And I have to say this white people control all of the resources in Dayton and that is a travesty. We have black elected officials who sit around and allow that to happen and I don't think that it should happen. There needs to be a reckoning. People want answers. People want change. And I think that's going to start with the residents of the city of Dayton to really fire everybody on the commission and the mayor.
0: Commissioner um, Mims, what would you you like to see happen?
4: A better understanding of the, the challenges that we all have and a better understanding of the issues and a better alignment of activities and efforts when we are putting forth solutions to address many of the concerns that are being raised here. And, and I'll go back to an a issue um, about three years ago four years ago the first tax increase that Dayton passed in 34 years which was a a, a issue called issue 9 and issue 9 was uh, developed to generate dollars for education preschool education to make sure that those preschool services that we were giving to our young people were better than what they should be so that when kids moved to kindergarten after um, being in preschool, that those preschool experiences were solid, to make sure that we improved our educational uh, uh, programs there. Also, to help with recreation. Also, to put dollars into EMS services because we are had this serious opiate crisis that we are dealing with. To additionally put dollars into cutting grass in vacant areas and lots once a week as opposed to once a month, tearing down uh, vacant homes at a faster rate than we are currently doing. And, and and it's so interesting that when we look at that, to also add additional safety forces in terms of additional police services and additional training. And it's interesting that uh, to the loudest, loudest voices for the concerns and things that we have not done were the only voices of opposition when we put that tax in place and it's it just sort of amazing to me when I look at that and then this inconsistently when those individuals are called on those particular issues about whether they did it. You can say
3: my name. Say didn't your name. Just yes, say my name. You I, to say I can tell you why I You all sat there behind and closed doors and developed Issue 9 without community input. You don't develop Thank things you. without the community no being involved in it and <laughs> I oppose it because Dayton Public Schools had five-star preschools. There was no need for a daggone preschool promise to fund Tom Lasley and his idea is what we needed to do, and I'm surprised that you, Jeff, being a union leader, being an educator, why would you support a public-private partnership without community input when we didn't have Dayton Public School preschools full? I oppose it. Racial Justice now opposes it, and I know NOP opposes it, because we don't want things shoved down our throat without our input. White people created that plan for what black people needed. We wanted our invoice, we wanted our voices on it in the beginning to design the plan. So yes, we oppose it, and I, I oppose it to this day because as see it, there's no uh, issue, uh, there, there's really no improvements. I love to see the data saying that there's been any improvements from issue nine. Okay, we're going to, uh, issue nine happened.
0: Okay, yeah. we're going to move on for issue nine right now, okay? Yeah. Everybody move on for issue nine. It's okay. We'll,
4: we'll, so, uh, okay. The point that I was making, the strongest point that I was making, is the fact uh-huh. of understanding where we are and what we need to do and how we need to get there. The concerns that we raise on a repeated basis, again, just like we talked about the issue of the state determining school funding and uh, putting that burden on local school districts, the same applies to us as we try to raise and generate revenue to provide the type of quality programs and quality of life opportunities that we have in the city of Date. So clearly, because of strong passage of that particular issue, there were a lot of people who understood that. Clearly, there's major benefit to this city because of the results of those dollars that we got from that particular process. And it's hard, it is very hard when you look at a community of 15-year gaps of increased revenue for schools, 12-year gaps. On three separate occasions, you've had those kind of gaps in the public school system in Dayton being able to generate additional dollars Yet and still, the demands for excellence continue to grow, and in, uh, the dollars to make those things happen continue to shrink. The same thing from a city that did not have an increase in 34 years, and excellence is still being requested, and it's still the desire of all of the employees in the city of Dayton, as well as all of the uh, commissioners and the mayor, to generate the highest quality of life that we can for the citizens that we have in Dayton. Mm -hmm. It cannot be done without collaborative understanding of what those challenges are and how we have to do those challenges, nor can it be done on a continuous basis when we try to develop partnerships that are going to assist us in making those kinds of things happen. So it's a balance, it's a tight balance. There's no perfect process in terms of doing this. And all we can say is that we move forward to the best of our ability and surveys were done, surveys were taken, which is why it passed on a very large and, basis. And,
2: and let's be honest and let's be clear as to why it passed. Because the legislative language was very vague. It did not take detail what, in fact, those dollars will be used for. The second part to that, when you talk about hey, peace and promise, hey, the question that we the raised stop, is that it wasn't let's
0: a Let's not talk about it, this issue right here. Let's keep moving. Um,
1: Thank you.
0: Um, Jeff, what would you say be the one thing you wanted to see happen in terms of um, improving the black community's relationship with uh, police?
8: Well, as as one of the two white people in the conversation, I I would disagree that the conversation is not needed. Um, Unless you can provide a safe environment for white people to talk and and express maybe their ignorant opinion and be told that their opinion is ignorant in a safe environment, they're just going to withdraw and things are not going to change. I look at Pastor Ward and my own pastor. That's to me, is the most logical place for those conversations to occur because the church is a safe place for most people. This shouting at each other is just going to get people who are not really affected by the issue to walk away. And if you're not going to want to talk to people about it and you want to advocacy it or you want to tear it down, because you've been in the fight for 25 years, good luck to you, but you're not going to do it. The only way we can do is understand this is not a police issue, this is a community issue. I've heard a lot of conversations tonight about education, employment, about access to medical care, all those other things don't have anything to do with the police department. We're here tonight because a lot of people wanna make this a police community issue. It's not a police community issue, it's a community community issue. And all of us gotta be in part of the solution and we got to do it by starting to talk. And, and I, I look to uh, Pastor Ward, and I hope a lot of the churches start to take that banner up because it's in those safe places that that conversation can occur because people have to be able to explain their life to their eyes. And, and you can't do that throughout dialogue. If you yell at them, they're just going to walk away. And that's a two-way street. We've got to meet in the middle of the street. We can't sit here and continue to yell at each other from both sides of the street.
6: Chief, I, Chief, I, I agree but with we, at the, the heart of, of of what you're saying about creating that space where dialogue can occur. I, I, I agree with that, but I, I just want to qualify that from my perspective that we have to define what, what safety is. Safety is not uh, uh, making sure people with power and privilege are comfortable. Well, we're we're to, or, and I'm not saying you're saying that. I, I'm not That's saying right. you're saying that at all, but for the audience. If, if for no one else. Uh, Too to often we talk about safe spaces. Uh, we're talking about spaces that are intentionally disruptive, that are uncomfortable, driven by love, driven by a common goal. These are very, very difficult spaces, and it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for those with various types of power and privilege. Here we're talking about race. So, uh, you know, white people have to make the choice to enter into spaces where they're going to feel very, very uncomfortable, and because sure. there's some spaces, if it's going to be meaningful dialogue, it's going to be spaces that's going to really require you to go to a place where the educational system and every other system in this country has allowed you to avoid, right? And so, and I think it has to start with leadership, right? And, you know, you know, exactly. I, you know, and I think it, it doesn't end there, but you know, it's, it's making the right. choices. i I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. You know, um, you know, I, Frederick, you know, uh, James Baldwin said, uh, and I'm quoting him, I hope I'm, I'm accurate. You can't fix what you're not willing to face. That's right. And, 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 and largely, not all like, I got, I have, I have white friends and colleagues that are on in, in, in front lines, you know, you know, in fighting this fight. But there are too many with power and privilege that use that privilege to avoid facing
8: Right, and I, I, you but you, so you, you,
6: safety and, you, and you, discomfort are not synonymous. I just wanted to make But sense.
8: you, but you have to be and, cautious that they're not entering into the conversation because they're scared of the backlash, and you do have to make that safe. And I'll use my example: 25, 30 years ago, when I started on my understanding of racial issues, my the personnel director at the time in the city of Battle Creek, who was African American. And he could sit down he could explain to me, Jeff, that's, if, if you look at that statement you just made through the eyes of an African-American or a person of color, this is why that's offensive. But it was a safe place for him to do that. And that's, if that doesn't occur, then people aren't going to come to the table and then we're going to just be talking about this 10 years from now. You have to provide that. And it's not they don't avoid it because of white privilege. They avoid it because they don't want to be offensive when they go into that conversation. And if they're told two seconds into the conversation they're offensive, get out of here, they're going to get out of there. And that's where that's going to go. So if you ask for what I would like to see, um, that's, a, that's a big part of it, Amelia. I'd also like to see that we don't try to reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of good quality programs that are out there working. You have ALPAC, which is in the, uh, through the Civil Rights Commission in Michigan. Kellogg Foundation has put a tremendous program together about truth, racial healing, and transformation. I would just ask that we don't try to reinvent the wheel so that, that our, our particular interest group can lead the front because there's just a lot of programs out there. And I think many times in government, we just reinvent the, try to reinvent the wheel and we don't look around us to other programs that are working. Maybe not to the extent we want them to, but they're at least initial steps.
6: Can I clarify something, Amelia? I just want to clarify, uh, and this is not just you, Steve, but I talk about dialogue and discomfort it's not just discomfort for white people. There's discomfort for everybody right. in that conversation. Right. There's various yeah. levels of discomfort. What we're going to have to do, though, is make a commitment to each other to, to stay at the table, stay at the place, and to really be, you know, dialogues about really positioning ourselves, not so much to to, to, to convince you exactly. of reality, but it's also about uh, making a commitment to listen to your perspective as well. Um, no question. Exactly. So so I wanted to just make that point. Yeah, and, and with that clarification, with that clarification, me—I know you didn't ask me yet—but with that clarification, Jeff, I, uh, Chief, let me say that if if Jeff, if Dr. Burnley hadn't jumped in and said something about that, I would, because while I do understand having, um, like you said, safe spaces for people to come in and um, be able to be heard and be able to voice an opinion, as uh, someone sitting in your office, I, I can't say that I could accept somebody you have a responsibility to be there. And so I was kind of triggered by that, too. I'm not here to make somebody else comfortable. I'm 6'5". That's I'm, right. I'm, I'm, uh, But I'm also a scholar. I'm also a writer. I'm, You know, I'm all these things. But when you see me initially, I'm 6'5", 300 pounds, and wide is all outdoors. So then my job is to come in this capacity. My job is to come and speak for the community. I need... Um, the vitriol that you get from certain parties. And I'll say either one of y'all names. I love both of y'all. But you need that vitriol. You need the people. I've been at the table about two years. I need the, the voices that have been at the table longer, that have been in those fights longer, to speak up. And I don't care who's uncomfortable. And that's, that's, that's not a, um, a shot or a, a disregarding of what you're saying. I completely understand what about allies and I am I think you could ask anybody in this circle I'm a consensus builder but I'm not going to be pissed on and told it's raining and so I, I just I don't think that we can quiet the voices that we don't want to hear because it's inconvenient now to be called to the carpet to answer for what a job that you've taken on it's the I, job I,
8: he, let me make something perfectly clear I'm not here because that's my job I'm yep. here because I have walked for the last 30 years and trying to, as a white person in America, to be part of the solution to this problem. I'm not here because of my job. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks. Yep.
0: I want to have one question, one last question, because it's come up a couple times, and this is where Chief Bill and um, mainly, it's the idea of the residency rule. A lot of people want the residency rule back, and I know it was un- you know unconstitutional yep. and so forth. Is yep. there, like, any incentives Uh, that the city can do to make officers want to live in the communities where they work, and also this idea of community policing. What do we do um, for community policing in Dayton?
5: Well, I'm going to start with the last, just going to repeat what I previously said. It's really policing uh, in a manner which the community supports and which the community says this is important to us. Those are the dialogues. Those are the safety plans I've been trying to encourage the CPC to move forward with you know, you, you, police officers left to their to their own means will take enforcement action. that They think it's going to make a difference. It may not be what the community wants. In fact, even the, the organizations that represent communities don't necessarily represent the voice of the broader community. So it's really who helps set that agenda. But it really needs to be – that needs to be done. It should be policing this and responsive to the needs and the prioritizations of the very communities we serve. In terms of residency rule, I mean, there can be ways to incentivize it. But there's some very practical reasons. I mean, like, for instance, there's some people whose spouse works in Cincinnati, and they work in Dayton, so they live halfway. So there's more than one reason why someone chooses to, to not live in the city. Now, some folks may not like that, but that's the reality of the kind of world and relationships that exist nowadays.
0: All right, well, hey, I just want to thank you all. This was, um, this was a courageous conversation. I know that at that point we got a little heated, but I think we, we started to try, you know, we, we communicated, and this is the start of a conversation that I hope continues yep. in Dayton and our surrounding communities because it's an important one, and I am glad that the uh, Dayton Daily News was able to be a part of it. And I really do thank you all for sharing your thoughts, and hopefully we can uh, move forward a little bit from this conversation.
4: Well, you know, I, I thank you as well, because, again, uh, it's, it's not that it's really an uncomfortable conversation, because these are things that are reflective of what people are feeling and what people are thinking. And uh, we're here. I, I know I am, and I'm sure everybody else is here, because we really, truly care about and We care about this community. And there are ideas and thoughts that we have that we want to express. And uh, stepping on someone's toes, if you will, sometimes that's just the nature of the business. And, and we all have to deal with that, and we've dealt with it over the years. So, again, I thank you. Thank everyone who participated in the process. And uh, certainly I know I will take everything that's been said and put it in the, its proper category and move forward to make the city the best we can. Thank you, Amelia.
2: Thank
6: you, everybody.
0: Thanks, Amelia. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
6: Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Good to see you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this special episode. I hope you are having courageous conversations of your own. The What Happened Was podcast is written, edited, and produced by me, Amelia Robinson, and my house. The show's artwork is by my good friend, Troy Liming of T.L. Crease of Columbus. Special thanks this week to Kelly Martin, Allie Swanson, and Emily who helped get the first courageous conversation up, running, and promoted. Until next time, keep the conversation going.